reading begins in Luke 13 and verse 31. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's already talked about going there to lay down his life. And it's been a long journey, but it's not over yet. A couple more chapters before he gets to Jerusalem. And along the way, something happens that brings Jerusalem to mind. We begin in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. One of the great uh, stories of the Old Testament is the story of Ruth. And one reason people are encouraged to read not just your favorite parts of the Bible, but the whole, because you might miss great stories if you ignore the little four-chapter book of Ruth back in the Old Testament. It's a wonderful story, and the, the picture of what happens to the main character really points towards how God provides salvation to his people. That historical book gives us a picture of salvation. You may recall the main character of Ruth. She took up the faith of her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law who had become a widow, and then Ruth became a widow. And although some were departing in their widowhood back to their old ways, Ruth said to Naomi, says, your God will be my God. And where you go, I will go. Does that ring a bell? That's Ruth. And when Ruth goes back to the uh, promised land, she goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi. They meet the other main character, a fellow with an unusual name, Boaz. Boaz was a godly man, and he finds out about their predicament, and he takes gracious care of both Naomi and Ruth, and he eventually marries Ruth. But there's a little phrase that he says when he sees how God has taken care of Ruth, the one who entrusted herself to God. Boaz says um, uh, that, Ruth, you have taken refuge under God's wings. Just a little passing comment in that Old Testament story with that beautiful picture of how a bird can uh, use its wings to protect its young chicks. And he sees, Ruth, God has protected you in that way. And later, as Ruth interacts with him, she says, I have indeed experienced shelter under his wings. And God has provided Boaz to provide me shelter. So it's a beautiful picture of how we find God's provision in a broken world. 
and how God in his grace covers and protects us. It's a common image, and it's one that Jesus uses in today's passage. He'll talk about a hen covering her chicks with wings. I'm sure Jesus had in mind that very attribute of care and refuge that God provides, that he wanted to provide. And the good news is, he still does. Today, you can experience the protecting love and care of Jesus. Today, before this hour is up, if you flee to him and trust in him, In the midst of this passage where Jesus mentions that, he does tell us much also about his mission and his heart. So it's a very deep and emotive passage that we take up this morning that will show us Jesus Christ and all that he endured for us. Let's take a look at our focused Savior As we look at this long paragraph, I've divided it under three headings so that we can talk about it in parts. A focused Savior, and then the second part, as we get to it, we'll see a rejected Savior. And thirdly, we'll see a compassionate Savior. But first, the the focus. How does this passage start? What is mentioned at the beginning? Well, there's some Pharisees, and they come and they speak to Jesus. And right away, you're your censors uh, are up. You're, you're watching those Pharisees because typically they didn't get along with Jesus, most of them. They tried to entrap him. What are they up to now? Well, this is what they say. Get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. They're coming to say your life is in danger. They're not the ones threatening his life, so we read, but they're worried about Herod. Why are the Pharisees doing this? Why would the Pharisees be helping Jesus? That's an interesting question, and we don't know the answer. And it may just be that they're in cahoots with Herod, and they're trying to manipulate Jesus in some way. We don't know their motives. We just know that they're the messengers. It's Herod that's the dangerous one at the moment. You see, Herod was ruling under Uh, the the Roman occupiers, a certain region, including Galilee, through which Jesus was traveling at that time. And so he was in Herod's uh, area, and he would be in danger. This is the same Herod who, it's recorded in Scripture earlier, that he put John the Baptist to death, had him beheaded. So this ruler... Is, is not one to issue idle threats if it, it, he indeed is threatening Jesus' life. The Pharisees bring that message. And what does it do to Jesus? Well, it doesn't change his plans one bit. Jesus is focused. Jesus knows what he's doing. He doesn't have to scratch his head and come up with plan B. Indeed, it looks like Jesus is in control here. He sends a message to Herod. And uh, what does he say? He doesn't say tell Herod. He says to him, go and tell that fox. Why would Jesus pick that particular animal to use as a figure of speech? He doesn't say go and tell the lion. That would be dignified, powerful, regal. Jesus himself has been called the Lion of Judah. What does he mean by fox? Well... 
In the ancient world in particular, I'm not so sure about today, but in the ancient world for sure, the fox was one known for their cunning and their, their hunting, but they were not necessarily strong and they were lowly. They were uh, sneaky. They weren't impressive. In fact, by and large, they were considered pretty insignificant in the ancient world. Yeah, they're around. Jesus is diminishing Herod's threat. Go tell that fox. Now, we know Herod did have an awareness of Jesus. Back in chapter 9, verse 7, it said, Herod the Tetrarch had heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. He heard things about Jesus, and he was perplexed. The verse goes on to say, because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. I thought I'd killed that guy. So Herod was perplexed. And in one dimension, Herod was taking Jesus personally. So Herod was a threat, but it doesn't knock Jesus off his course. Our Savior is focused even in the face of a real death threat because he's aware of the eternal plan of God and he's fulfilling it. There was a great preacher named George Whitfield. If you've ever seen a Banner of Truth book, the image of George Whitfield preaching in his preaching gown is what they use as their logo for the Banner of Truth. George Whitfield famously preached in the fields and outside as well as indoors because the Church of England had kicked him out for his gospel focus. So he's often preaching outdoors, and that meant you had a, a whole wild crowd. He preached in Boston. Ben Franklin heard him. He preached in many places. And frequently he was assailed, not just the rotten tomato, but rocks. He was ridiculed and he was threatened. But he preached on. And a thundering, roaring voice. And through the preaching of George Whitfield, many, many across the American colonies were converted and it would lead to a great awakening. We're so thankful for George Whitfield. But he often faced opposition. But he knew what I think Jesus knew. We are immortal till our work is done. That's what Whitfield said. We're immortal until our work for God is done. Jesus, fully God himself, knew the work and would remain to see it done. What was the nature of his work? When we see this focus, Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. And here, as he explains, go tell that fox, uh, Herod, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. What's the nature of Jesus' work? It's a work that blesses and helps the people. Jesus is doing a work of deliverance. And all of the miraculous signs and wonders confirm the message of deliverance he was giving. He said, follow me. Ah, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. I can show you the Father. I and the Father are one. All the things that Jesus said confirmed by casting out demons and performing cures. He'd been doing it a long while, and that's why he had become so famous, even in the eyes of Herod. His mission was not self-preservation or political dodgeball. He just didn't change when Herod threatened. His mission was to save. 
Jesus would say, and it's recorded in the scriptures, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The life of the Son of God, born in Bethlehem, active throughout the region, killed, buried at Jerusalem, but raised on the third day. That life was a life as a savior to deliver, to bring the change and help every fallen human heart needs. The guilt for the sin that you've committed can only be lifted by this savior. That's the nature of his work. I'm delivering people. The kingdom has come. The signs of the kingdom are being done in your midst and you don't understand it, but you should. You should connect the dots. And what we have here in Jesus and his response to Herod is one who is in control, one who has real authority. There's a real kingdom rolling and it still is around. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The nature of his work. And before we move on, I think we need to underline the determination of Jesus in that work. It seems clear because he gives this time reference more than once, doesn't he? He says, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. There's the nature of his ministry. Today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. As he ends the first part of the text, he's talking about his determination. The work would be done today. It'll be done tomorrow. I'm not going to stay home and think about it. I'm still on track. And this little phrase, today, tomorrow, and the third day, was a common idiom of the time for a short-term project. We often say a couple of days, or we, we have other expressions for short projects. Won't take long. And people understand that the project is practically in hand. Today, tomorrow, and the third day. We'll get it done this weekend. Jesus was speaking with confidence and determination. It's not a cryptic prophecy as some might try to make it. And his work was made more difficult with all the pressures and oppositions. But his determination is revealed in particular in two words. Do you see two words that show this determination? He says, I must. That's the voice of a resolved will. Jesus shows his holy obligation. I must do this. I'm under divine orders. This is the will of God. And then the other word that reveals his determination says, I finish my course. I finish my course. Why does he reference that? Why send that word to Herod? Why has that recorded in scripture? Because Jesus completes what he begins. He doesn't leave loose ends for his people to pick up the ball like in rugby and try to get closer to the touchdown uh, or the score. You know how the ball moves so quickly. Jesus goes all the way. Jesus finishes what he begins. 
And this is, I think, a brief foreshadowing for those words which he will utter on the cross before he breathes his last. He will say to Telestai, it is finished. What a savior. The nature of his ministry and he gets it done. This isn't, this isn't the Buddhist system where we have to think and, 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 quandre, and wonder and, and find ourselves in moral ethical quandaries that we have to untie and, and meditate and empty. This isn't the man just being religious type of thing. Christianity is about a historical savior who did what needed doing. The end, the culmination of all the sacrifices of the Old Testament is this, in this one perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I will finish. I will go to Jerusalem. I will lay down my life. And on the third day, I'll take it up. The author, the book of Hebrews is all about the life and ministry of Jesus. The book of Hebrews is like a, a rich commentary on Jesus. If you want to understand uh, the priesthood of Jesus or the blood of Jesus, why? The book of Hebrews will make a lot of things plain, but it does so from a Hebrew Old Testament perspective. So if Hebrews is a little challenging, it's because we're weak on our Old Testament. But it says some things very clearly. When you get to Hebrews 12, it describes this finishing, this determination, this work of Jesus. Hebrews 12. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Because I'm going to mention them now, and in about 15 minutes, I'm going to mention them again. This book that describes the work and person and ministry of Jesus comes to chapter 12 with this wonderful pronouncement. Therefore, since we, believers, Christians, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus. And then there's a comment that tells you all about Jesus in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The finisher. He did it. It's not just an ethical model, see if you can do it. No, he accomplished this. He sat down, it's done. Oh, Hebrews talks about that earlier, chapters 9 and 10. You can tell he's a different kind of priest because he doesn't have to go back every year. He doesn't have to go in on the Day of Atonement with new blood next year at this time. Once for all, the sacrifice of Jesus. He knew what was at stake as he set his face toward Golgotha, toward Jerusalem, where other prophets have died. The determination of Jesus, the nature of his work, and his focus. He goes even knowing he is a rejected savior. Yes, certainly his disciples are following him in dozens, perhaps hundreds, maybe, maybe a thousand. Maybe a thousand from Galilee follow him. At the death of Jesus, he had 120 disciples in the upper room and, and maybe a few hundred more that had followed him from Galilee. They say it may be a thousand Christians at the death of Jesus. 
As he travels, he knows he is largely rejected and he knows the spiritual waywardness of Israel. When John's gospel tells a story, it says this, and it's so painful to read. He, the word became flesh. He came to his own and his own received him not. He came to the Jews who had the prophecies. They had the scriptures. They were looking for one to come from the line of David, one to be born in Bethlehem. They knew the details. Uh -uh, We don't like this Jesus. That's the background, his rejection. Look at the city of Jerusalem. There's a history of waywardness here. There's a history of waywardness in the city of Jerusalem, according to the text here. He is going to Jerusalem and he is about to lament Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the focus of this passage. But it's Jerusalem that's known for its waywardness. You know most major cities in the world? Let me just pause. Most major cities in the world have a nickname. They're known for something, right? Uh, Let me ask, uh, what's the nickname for New York? New York City. The Big Apple, it sounded confusing. The Big Apple's one, we'll go with that. And uh, I know I can ask at least one person, what's the nickname for Minneapolis? The Minneapple. It was a big deal. They, they, They ran with it and they had a little apple, it had a little bit of snow on top, that was their logo for the longest time. A little apple. That's appealing if you're in the Midwest. You know, they don't like their cities too big. How about this, Boston, Beantown, Chicago, The Windy City, that was a help. Paris, you have a couple of options there. The City of Love, Je t'aime. Or the City of Light, Las Vegas, Sin City. In the ancient world, there were cities that had reputations. Oh, Babylon, that's the pinnacle of opposition to God. Babylon, you see that all throughout the scriptures, even in the apocalyptic literature. And it even goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, which was the rising up of peoples united against God. Babylon's got a reputation. But Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the city of God. The other nickname for Jerusalem is the Golden City. The gleaming gold on the temple of Jehovah. But Jesus bewails Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The city of David that David took from the Jebusites, the city where Melchizedek, the king of Salem, likely reigned at one day long ago, has become a city of rebellion, corruption. You wonder where all these Pharisees got their misdirection it was pandemic it was endemic throughout the city waywardness corruption and Jerusalem is is here used I think to represent the whole of Israel it's not just picking on those urban believers oh the folks in the rural parts of Israel they love Jesus they would vote for him no it's it's Jerusalem's being used to show the whole waywardness of God's people Jesus calls it the city that kills the prophets. Do we know our Old Testament history? Zechariah, stoned to death on the steps of the temple. 
Jeremiah, how greatly he suffered at the hands of the people there in the city before the people were taken into captivity? Or how about Nehemiah's words from Nehemiah, 12, Nehemiah 9, 26? They were true then, they were true in Jesus' day. Nehemiah said, They were disobedient and rebelled against you, Lord, cast your law behind them and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. The book of Isaiah. Isaiah sent to warn the people. Captivity awaits those who continue in their rebellions. Come now, let us reason together. No thanks. Rebellious religious people rejecting God's messengers and now rejecting God's Messiah. We know that Jesus has already foretold his death. It's interesting in preparation for Luke 13, so many references in my mind and in my studies to Luke 9. Luke chapter 9 is a major turning point. If you haven't been with us for the last year and we're walking through the gospel of Luke, Chapter 9 is a great turning point. Jesus, he's, he spends special time with his apostles. Uh, and then he asks, who do they say I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then he began to teach them about the cross in chapter 9. Opposition began in chapter 9. And near the end of chapter 9, verse 51, thereabouts, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. A major turning point. It was in chapter 9. Jesus said, I'm going there to die. And all the Gospels record those prophetic words of Jesus. He was on track to go there to die. As Jesus thought of his destination, as he thought of this city, he laments. That's the words we have with the, the way it's worded. The, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. This is the wail of someone who is lamenting. There are words of judgment that follow as well. He's deeply caught up in what's happening, and yet he still goes. We'll get to the compassionate side of his words in just a moment, but as we're looking at the rejection, let's move to those words of judgment. Here he says to the city of Jerusalem, as he continues his lament, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, here comes the judgment, behold, your house is forsaken. Your house is empty. Jesus was seeking, Jesus was going. He's going to preach the gospel in Jerusalem before they killed him. He was giving them one more chance, but he still brings this word of judgment. Your house is empty. Now, does that refer to uh, the house, meaning the the generations, the peoples of Israel, genetically, the, the residents of the city, the residents of the nation, or is it referring to the temple in particular? It could be both. You do not have a right relationship with your God. 
You got a great temple, but it's just a building to you who do your religion for yourself to be seen by men and not your Father in heaven. Jesus talks about true spirituality in the Sermon on the Mountain in so many other ways. He's trying to get these whitewashed tombs to see the emptiness within. And it brought Jesus great heartache. Nevertheless, he speaks these hard words, I believe with tears. Your house is empty. One of the first recorded visits of Jesus to the temple was at age 12 or 13 as he would probably be undergoing his bar mitzvah and he'd be uh, treated more as an adult male among the Jews and going in. And he ended up listening to and instructing the teachers of the law in the temple. And Jesus knew that the temple was often misused. My house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves and robbers. Jesus knows their spiritual condition. There's no hiding from Jesus. No matter how beautiful a facade you build. You can't hide behind a big Bible or a big theological library or knowing big words like eschatology. Jesus sees behind the facade. Our God looks on the heart. That's how David got to be king. Jesus looked on the heart of the nation and saw emptiness. Words of judgment. They're painful. Pastor, commentator Doug Milne said this for us. The most tragic human life is one that is empty of God's presence when it might have been otherwise. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is being heralded today, here, now, through technology and to your ears. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Oh, how he would have us come and change that emptiness There are words of hope even following Jesus' judgment. Your house is forsaken, there in verse 35. And then he says, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, and he quotes Psalm 118, a famous line that every Jew would know. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From Psalm 118, it's part of the great Hillel. It would have been recited at every festival. It's the word that was common in Jerusalem. But if the house was empty, it was probably only on the lips and not from the heart. Jesus would hear it. You know, when he gets to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. Woo! That's a big day and it's a true day because he's king and he's welcomed. But it's just kind of lip service because the crowds turn. And the same people that have said this at the triumphal entry yell, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. What shall I do with this one? Crucify him. Crucify him. But this is a word of hope. He said, you will not see me until. So Jesus is saying there'll be an opportunity for the Jews. 
I think when we ask when is he referring to, I don't think it's just the triumphal entry because they reject him. Some commentators say, oh, it's when two Jews on the road to Emmaus, their eyes are open and then they see him. Well, I don't think that's what it's referring to either. I think this is tapping into the thoughts of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that one day Jesus will visit in a, a, a wave of revival among ethnic Jews so that many Israelis, many Jewish people, nominal or fervent believers, will find their Messiah. It's not referring to a second chance. It's appointed under man once to die and then the judgment. But Jesus says to the Jewish people whose house was empty on that day, there'll be a time and revival will come. Whichever it is, we know that today is the day for us who hear. Today is the day when you're hearing gospel, you're seeing Jesus. This is a moment, this is an opportunity, a fork in the road. Do you see how Jesus is rejected? Are you rejecting him? I urge you instead to see the compassion of our Savior. So we hurry on this third heading. I wanted to gather the threads from this text as Jesus laments as he, as he puts Herod down, Jesus shows us his heart, his great heart for his work and for his people. It may, it may sound strange that we talk about the emotional life of our Lord. It might. You know, especially a lot of our theologians, men, we're not in touch with our emotions. We get a little nervous when people talk about emotions. But Jesus, there's one of the great American theologians, B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, known primarily for his work on the doctrine of scripture and a few other things, very prolific author, American theologian. He wrote a very small little book that's so helpful, entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's over 100 years old now, so it's probably out of copyright. You can get it probably free on Google or something like that. But he just studies it. And the book was written, it said, it explains how Christ's complex emotions and personality proved his humanity. It was necessary for Christ to be born in the likeness of mankind, to bear our griefs, to carry our sorrows, to take our infirmities, and ultimately redeem these lives. In this encouraging book, readers learn to see Christ as a compassionate Savior through his sinless expressions of emotion, from righteous anger to abiding love. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in this passage, we see some of those emotions. We see his compassion. He cares as a godly man for his neighbors, for the people. It really is seen elsewhere as well in the life of Jesus, in case you're wondering. Uh, when his good friend Lazarus dies, Jesus knows he's ill. He waits. Lazarus dies. He goes, visits Mary and Martha. They're crying. They're hanging all over him, Lord. And Jesus weeps as well at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept at the loss of a loved one. 
Jesus prayed with tears. We're told that again in the book of Hebrews, that commentary on Jesus. Hebrews 5-7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. I like the whole verse there. Crying as you pray, it was done reverently. You can't manipulate God. No crocodile tears. But genuine from the heart, moved with emotion. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know later on we'll get to Luke 19. And Luke and other gospel writers record that Jesus weeps during that last week in Jerusalem. As Phil Riken says, no one has ever had a more dynamic emotional life than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a perfect man, and that includes perfect emotions across the whole spectrum. Oh, I'd like to pause and speak to my brothers. Men, there's nothing wrong with your emotional life. Jesus had that emotional life. We're not driven or led by our emotions, but they're part of who we are, how we're made. Don't disparage that. Feel and obey. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. The emotional life of our Lord, his compassion most of all. But let me move on and and talk here as he's lamenting. Instead of putting down the word lament in my sermon outline notes, I put the word tears. And yes, the next point is going to be feathers. So you know what we're talking about. First, the tears. Jerusalem, that precious city of great history built on the same mount we believe where Abraham brought the child of promise that he had waited so long Isaac and Isaac was old enough to talk and help carry the wood they go up on Mount Moriah and God had asked him to sacrifice his son at the last second uh, uh, an animal is substituted and God says now Abraham I know that you fear me The little boy had asked, Father, I see the wood and I see the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham had said, God will provide. That place, Jerusalem, to which Jesus now thinks and looks, is what triggers his lament. Another key to this lament is at the very beginning of our little passage in verse 31. I'm sure the Bible scholars that have been trained observers saw it. I was saving it till now. How does verse 31 begin? At that very hour, some Pharisees said, get out of here. At that very hour. It's a connection to what Jesus had just taught. What had Jesus just taught? Well, in the previous passage, we looked at it last week. That there's a narrow door into the kingdom and few there are that find it and many who think they'll get in and who knock and point to all sorts of stuff I never knew you Jesus had just taught how many Jews were going to miss salvation they're going to be closed out of the ark they're going to be kept out of the kingdom because of their sinful rebellion and foolish pharisaical practices 
And Jesus wasn't happy about that. He was grieved. And now that he thinks of Jerusalem again, the the representative of a people like that, he's so sorrowful. I believe tears join these words of lament. Now, lament is not a common word today, though it is a language woven throughout Scripture, says one. Lament is a passionate expression of our pain to God. We've heard laments at the loss of a loved one. We stand with those who grieve. Oh, it's so strong. A very strong emotion. And there's really not much we can say. We pray for those who have that depth of grief. Jesus was such a savior that he was thinking of Jerusalem and the many that would perish. And he laments, this is hard. Why won't people see and believe? I've done signs, I've done miracles, I've explained it. I've been patient. Some were just there for the free food. The show, the news, the interest, the curiosity. Jesus was there for the real reasons. Inviting. But coming up without much response. The lament of Jesus. There's a lament in Psalm 130. The Psalms have many examples of it. Psalm 130 begins with these words. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. That's the godly psalmist praying with deep passion and feeling. And I guess I linger on this point because you know what? One of the big problems of the church in comfortable Disneyland-like America is we don't really care that people are lost. Oh, how far our hearts have gone in self-centeredness. We need to recapture this kind of compassion that sees the lost and we don't just try to caption it. Well, they're breaking this commandment. I can give you the number. Don't go near them. We don't want to celebrate the sin, but we must love the sinner. Jesus went to them. Hear the heart of Christ in this lament and learn. We need to learn from Jesus. The tears. And then feathers. Jesus uses a very common image that would have been well known to people in the ancient world. Modern urban Americans, not so much. We don't see this. I've seen, I've seen a bird do this and you can always uh, look on YouTube for how birds will do this. Even a 
I read uh, that they've, they found where there have been wildfires in the prairies where a, a prairie hen will try to cover its brood even as the flames rush by, giving up her life and yet usually sparing the life of a couple of those chicks as a wildfire goes by. They have pictures and all that. The extent. Jesus says, oh, that... Um, I've got to find the word so I don't misread it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Jesus uses this illustration of motherly care, this this illustration of motherly compassion. Uh, It's so precious. And it resonates with everyone who hears it. He says, that's what I'm here to do. To to shelter you, to bring you close with, with this agape love. Christ is inviting us. And, and he, he wants us to, to say what David would say. What Ruth had found in Boaz and shelter. But as David would pray, Psalm 57, this language of shelter... David said, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to the Most High God, says David, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And God has sent Jesus. Jesus giving this illustration, he's giving us an invitation. Come in here. This is safe. There's a refuge in this broken world, this abusive world, this harsh and hard world. I want to love you. His tears, his teaching, his invitation. Well, let me close so we're gone. The time flies. Let me just exhort you with three commands, three uh, steps that we really must take away from this text. First, consider Christ's compassion. Consider Christ's compassion and copy Christ's compassion to sinners. That, my friends, may be the need of the hour. May God bless this word. And there's more coming. When we get to Luke 15, we'll see how much God desires the recovery of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And it begins with compassion. Do you care? See the compassion of Jesus. Be Christ-like. Secondly, be ready and bear the heartache. Be ready and bear the heartache as Jesus did. Um, some sermon applications are not happy. This one will just remind us all that uh, the road of following Christ brings opposition. It brings uh, people out of the woodwork to tell us how much they don't like us and the things we say for Jesus' sake. Ministry in a broken world is very hard. I pray with other ministers. I work with ministers. There's a, there's a dilemma across America where the pulpits are hard to fill. 
more than any other time in recorded statistics among ministers, guys are getting out. It's hard. It takes a toll on families. Emotional energy. Just the other day, I, I said, I, I think I know a little bit more what Paul meant when he says he feels the weight of the care for the churches. Which is one reason I want to make another effort to be in your home, to get to know you as a pastor. Not just to scratch where it itches, but to scratch everywhere. <laughs> to get to know everyone. And to try to shepherd near and far, not just the people that come asking, but to look out for all of you. It's hard. There will be heartache. Jesus knows that full well. But we need to be mindful and focused as Jesus was. I like the line from a Psalm of David, my times are in your hands. Find it in Psalm 31. Our lives belong to the Lord. He leads us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. And we'll need that comfort. And finally, the last exhortation is focus. Focus like our Savior. Run the race that is set before you. Here's the second reference to Hebrews 12. Not to the part about Jesus as much as the part that's addressed to us. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also... Also means those witnesses, those are martyrs. Other Christians have gone this way. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're not going to Jerusalem to die for our own sins. Christ has done that. But God calls you to be a witness to your family to be a witness in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your life. And I pray we finish well. I pray we have that focus, that we're not deterred. Should death threats come? Distractions. Focus and run the race. Looking unto Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many ways your word comes to us and challenges us. Your word shows us our Savior and all he's done for us, and that's so wonderful. It's amazing grace. But Father, you do want us to follow our Lord with compassion for sinners and a focus on serving you. Father, help us in all these ways. Strengthen us. Increase our prayer life. May we have your word in our hearts and minds. May we meditate on it and be careful to do according to all that is written in it. That our way may be profitable and fruitful. Lord, do these things for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is really a hymn of rejoicing, seeing how God has provided. He sent his son from heaven to earth. Number 495, let's sing God's praises. Let's stand.
from the word of God for us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word this day and always 
Amen. Amen. Please be seated for some announcements. Most of the announcements are on the colored sheet of paper, so if you've got that, you should be good to go. I don't have any to add this week. Uh, we do have a brief coffee time, a refreshment time, and then Sunday school near the top of the hour. You'll probably hear a uh, bell ring. That's just a reminder that Sunday school classes are starting. The adults are in the fireside room. We have our last lesson on redemption accomplished and applied. And we'll have another topic starting up uh, in the near future on knowing or discovering God's will. In the evening service, we're finishing up uh, 1 Peter. We have just a couple lessons to go in 1 Peter. So join us in the Sunday evening informal service. We do a little bit more singing, praying, and time in God's word. We have prayer meetings on Wednesday. And uh, throughout the weeks coming up, we have home visits. You can see the announcement. Home visits are underway. That's me making an effort to get to... uh, into your home, to have time to talk with you one-on-one. Sundays can be so busy. Uh, To help facilitate that, rather than me calling for appointments, I set up a couple of sign-up sheets downstairs on the round table for the month of February with some time slots that are uh, normally good for me. I looked at my calendar, and if you want to sign up for a slot, you can have it. I already put somebody in a slot for Wednesday, but there's slots on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays except for Thursday the 29th. There's no appointments on Thursday the 29th. Um, So if you would think about it and go ahead and sign up, that has saved me calling you. And if you wait till March, uh, when I put out the March sheets, uh, there might not be enough slots if we all wait till March. So do think about signing up. And there's also a sign-up sheet for the membership seminar. In the last couple weeks, several people have told me they'd like to come. And I know we've got six, eight, nine people already interested. If you could still sign on the sheet now that it's on the round table, that will help to have it all in one place. So those are the key announcements. The calendar is also written for you on the colored sheet. And with those being made, we are dismissed. <laughs>